Good afternoon. My name is Rachel, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Insider Briefing Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you should need assistance during the call, please press star, then zero on your telephone keypad, and an operator will come back to assist you. Thank you. Elise Schumann, you may begin your conference. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. Well, actually, good morning to some. And welcome to the first of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute's monthly insider briefing calls for 2016. I'm Elise Schumann, and I'm co-chair of the Workplace Policy Institute. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, has recently proposed changes to its Employer Information Report, or EEO-1, form submissions. The EEO-1 currently collects information such as race and gender from companies with 100 or more employees. Under the proposed rule, these companies would now also have to provide pay data. Additionally, the EEOC has proposed new enforcement guidance on retaliation. This 76-page document appears to make significant policy changes as well, including expanding the definition of what constitutes protected activity. I'm joined here today by three expert Littler attorneys to discuss these important developments. First, we have Alan King, co-chair of Littler's Class Actions Practice Group. Next, we have David Goldstein, co-chair of Littler's Government Contractors Industry Group and OFCCP Practice Group. And last but certainly not least is Kevin Cram, a core member of our EEO and diversity group and a key litigator for Littler. Thanks to all three of you for joining us today. My first questions are for Alan. Alan, I'd like to start by asking you about the EEO report. Why are these changes such a big deal? At least I think these changes are important because they signal the EEOC and uh, the government in general newfound attention to pay disparities. And pay differences are probably the more difficult of all the ways in which employees may differ to understand. And the reporting that's now required is going to place a burden on employers to get the information to the government, and yet, as I'll explain, the information that's being provided is not all that useful in understanding the problem the EEOC is targeting. So there's a burden imposed with no substantial benefit, and in fact, I believe there's some substantial harm that can follow from organizing and providing information in the way the government is requiring. Um, can you go into a little bit more detail about what kind of burden um, this could place on businesses and uh, what, if any, um, perceived benefit? Well, the burden consists of a new type of reporting that's going to have to be filed by employers in addition to what's already being provided to the EEOC. And this will require employers for each establishment to indicate the W-2 income received by its employees in each of 10 occupational categories. And it won't be a simple average that will be reported, but rather the form that's contemplated will break the pay scale 
into various segments, and the employer will be required to indicate the number of employees in each occupation by gender, by race, and sex. Well, I guess gender and sex are a little redundant, but in any event, they will be required to report this information in this specified way. And gathering the information is, I believe, going to be problematic for many employers because, as I mentioned, it requires W-2 income, which is not typically the income information or the compensation information that many employers track on a monthly basis. And here the reports are required to be filed in July and September. So although an employer may not compile W-2 statements until the end of the year, this report will require that they compile it during July, uh, August, or September, which is obviously out of the main reporting cycle. The lack of benefit of this information falls from the fact that the occupational groups for which reports are required are extremely broad, and there can't be any reasonable expectation that people in these categories would be paid the same. For example, among professionals, this would include people such as engineers, accountants, lawyers, and chemists. You know, they're each paid according to the market in which they work. And comparing an average of these individuals without knowing the proportions is simply uninformative and will not give rise to useful information. Well, um, thank you. And, and I think a final question for you is, what's the potential harm? How could this be used by the EEOC or in private litigation? Well, the harm is really twofold. First, it can provide a false information, a false indication, rather, of where problems exist when, in fact, they don't exist, simply because information is being improperly aggregated. Secondly, I believe it could have a spillover effect in litigation because plaintiffs will be able to organize the employer's data in the same way the EEOC is now requiring it. And while we would normally argue that that's an improper way to look at data, such as pay information, the plaintiff will now be able to say, well, we're merely doing what the government requires. How can that be improper or irrelevant? So I think it provides a degree of credibility to comparisons that normally should be judged incredible. Well, well, thank you, um, Alan, for that perspective. And it certainly um, sounds like this is a much, much more significant development than a mere change to, um, to a report form. Um, I now want to turn it over to, to David Goldstein. Um, David, what about federal contractors? Will they have any particular concerns with this proposed um, change to the EEO-1 report? They really do, Elise. This proposal is very similar in most respects to the proposed rule that the OFCCP published last year regarding the collection of compensation data. And having studied and responded to that proposal, federal contractors are already very familiar with the problems that would result from this change in the rules. Now, for the most part, these problems are the same as those that Alan just described. First, implementing systems to comply with the new reporting requirements is going to be very expensive and difficult, and then annually preparing the filings will be expensive and time-consuming for contractors. Second, 
although the data is very, very unlikely to be of any value to the EEOC or the OFCCP in terms of uncovering pay discrimination, the data could have great value to a company's competitors. There's a reasonable fear that the data may be accessible in ways that permit abuse. And that's going to be a greater risk for federal contractors than it would be for other employers. That's because Congress has imposed on the EEOC a very strict statutory obligation to maintain the confidentiality of employer data that it receives. But the OFCCP is not subject to the same restrictions. And indeed, many federal contractors have had experiences where OFCCP has mistakenly sent confidential documents or information to the wrong party. This is a real concern for contractors. Um, well, thank you, David, for, for, raising, those, um, for raising those concerns. Um, and as you mentioned, the OFCCP's um, previous proposed rule um, on compensated, compensation data collection, and this seems to replace that earlier proposal. What do you make of that, and do some of the same concerns with the OFCCP proposal apply here? Well, first, you are correct uh, about this apparently replacing OFCCP's previously proposed rule. The EEOC's proposal includes a footnote that says OFCCP plans to utilize the EEO1 data instead of implementing a separate compensation survey. And the OFCCP has posted a statement on its website confirming that it intends to collaborate with the EEOC on the collection of compensation data. Now, as I've already mentioned, the EEOC's proposal does not represent a significant improvement over the OFCCP's proposed rule. Uh, indeed, much of it is very much the same. However, I, I will say that it does partially address one issue uh, that was a concern with regard to uh, OFCCP's prior proposal. Under the uh, OFCCP's proposal, and, and for purposes of EEO1 filing, each employer is required to create an annual snapshot of its workforce based on its choice of any payroll period from July through September. Now, the OFCCP proposal would have required contractors to use that snapshot of the workforce to then file a separate report in the spring of the following year providing W-2 data for each employee included in the earlier snapshot. So snapshot in the late summer, early fall, and then the following spring, the pay uh, equity report. The timing of those reports and the requirement that contractors file two reports imposed very substantial burdens. This new proposal is an improvement to the extent that now only one report would have to be filed. However, the other concerns that were raised with regard to the OFCCP's prior proposal all still apply. Um, well, thank you, David. And, and activity on, on pay equity and equal pay is not just taking place in Washington at the federal level. Um, could you please give us an update on state equal pay laws and developments, and what about particularly New York and California? Yeah, absolutely. This has been a very hot topic with a lot going on. To, to preface what I have to say, though, I, I think we should start by being clear. No one denies the existence of a pay gap. The, the data in that regard speaks for itself. But the causes of that gap are complicated, and intentional sex discrimination by employers does not appear to be one of the causes. And in fact, in spite of aggressive efforts over the past 20 years to find and remedy pay discrimination, including multiple OFCCP initiatives in this regard, it remains the case that federal and state enforcement agencies report very few examples of pay discrimination. P 
pay discrimination meaning situations where women are doing the same job as men but being paid less for it. Now, in spite of that, instead of recognizing that the pay gap is not a problem of discrimination and going on to pursue more appropriate means of addressing the issue, the enforcement agencies have been blaming their failure to uncover more instances of pay discrimination against women on the legal standard that they have to follow in attempting to prove pay discrimination claims. So even though Title VII has long provided the standard for determining when there has been discrimination on the basis of pay, we are seeing efforts in the states to adopt laws that move away from the Title VII approach towards something more like comparable worth. And comparable worth being the idea that different jobs can be compared and that individuals performing work that can be deemed equally valuable to the employer have to be paid the same even if those individuals are performing completely different work, and no matter how hard it may be to determine which jobs should be comparable. Now, I'm very concerned that the proposed EEO-1 revisions and the manner in which the EEOC and OFCCP are proposing to collect and analyze data represent the opening gambit in an effort to change the rules of the game when it comes to proving pay discrimination. And we're seeing similar efforts to change the rules of the game in the states. In 2014, Minnesota legislators proposed a law that in its original form would have imposed comparable worth concepts on state contractors. The law that actually passed doesn't go that far, but it does create new obligations to review compensation practices. Then in 2015, California passed legislation that again tries to broaden the ways in which employers are required to consider pay equity. Similar types of legislation have now been proposed in Massachusetts and in New York and in multiple other states. There's just too much here to discuss in any depth during this call, but I think there are two basic messages for employers to take away. The first, we all share a common interest in ensuring that women are paid fairly and that no person is paid less than another because of his or her sex. It's important that employers get ahead of this issue and work for public policies that effectively, effectively address the pay gap, but without distorting free markets or imposing costs that will ultimately increase unemployment or generally depress all wages. The second takeaway is to pay attention to what's going on in the states. And in particular, note that as states move away from Title VII approaches, employers that wish to audit their own pay practices are going to have to look to new methodologies. For example, a regression analysis intended to identify issues under Title VII could well miss issues under some of the new or proposed state laws, such as California's law. In this environment, employers are going to need increasingly sophisticated counsel in order to assess their risks and ensure legal compliance. Well, David, that obviously you know, is a lot for employers to think about um, and be aware of what's going on, again, not just at the federal level, um, but at the at the state and local level um, too, um, and as much um, as that is for employers to take in, there's also another important proposal that recently came out of the, uh, the EOC that employers need to be aware of. And for that, I'm going to um, turn to Kevin um, and ask Kevin to explain um, this enforcement guidance um, that was recently proposed by the EOC and why it is. A big deal for employers. Well, that's right, Elise. On uh, January 21st, the EEOC released for public comment proposed enforcement guidance for retaliation cases that arise under uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, 
the Age Discrimination and Employment Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the EEOC, when it released the uh, draft uh, enforcement guidance on retaliation, provided the statistic that at present, uh, or in fiscal year 2015, 43% of the charges filed with the commission uh, contained at least uh, a claim of uh, retaliation. So it's a significant portion of the EEOC's docket retaliation claims. So the proposed guidelines that EEOC has published are intended to enlighten the public as to how the EEOC enforcement unit and uh, litigation units will investigate and uh, litigate retaliation charges, make probable cause determinations, and then what they'll think about when they consider whether or not they will seek relief on behalf of an individual or a class of individuals in litigation. The last time that the EEOC's retaliation guidelines were updated was in 1998. And the proposed guidelines about retaliation are important to employers for a number of reasons. First, um, the EEOC uses the, its guidelines um, and its investigators will use the guidelines um, to uh, impose the legal standards uh, that they will use when they're making their investigations and then issuing probable cause determinations. The guidelines are, will also, to some extent, impact what uh, Article III courts do with cases once they're in litigation and certainly the guidelines will be relied on by members of the plaintiff's bar and the commission as the commission tries to broaden the scope of the existing uh, precedents uh, that address retaliation. Well, and thank you. And um, can you just give us some insight about how you think the proposed enforcement guidance um, and whether it actually accurately reflects current law on retaliation. Sure. So, in my view, the the proposed enforcement guidance um, does not accurately reflect the current state of the law. Uh, my view is that the draft, as written, attempts to create a narrative that deviates from established legal precedents and will drive the investigators and the trial attorneys at the commission to take uh, more sweeping action when it comes to retaliation. And let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so generally, when an employee files a retaliation claim with the EEOC, he or she has to prove that she engaged in protected activity, the employer knew about the protected activity, then the employer took an adverse action, and that there's a causal connection between the protected activity and the adverse action. And what the proposed guidelines do or attempt to do, because they're still in the draft form, is to broaden the definition of what uh, constitutes protected activity and the standard for causation. So a couple of examples. As to protected activity, um, currently the, the laws that uh, address uh, workplace discrimination and retaliation define protected activity as an employee's participation in proceedings under the various EEO laws, such as participating in an EEOC investigation or litigation. But the proposed guidelines expand this protected participation to include 
participating in any informal or internal discrimination investigation, like a internal HR investigation. And this position is contrary to the plain language of the EEO laws, and it also conflicts with most federal circuit court precedent. The other, uh, another example is of the commission's attempt to uh, expand the definition of protected activity is the guidelines provide that so long as an employee reasonably believes that the opposed conduct is unlawful, that means that the individual will have engaged in protected activity. But the accurate state of the law is that the law only protects an, an employee's opposition to discrimination that is actually unlawful under one of the statutes and that the employee's belief as to what is unlawful is not germane. Um, another example is that the proposed guidelines advise that an individual who explicitly or implicitly, and that's key I think, communicates a belief that the employer may be engaging in employment discrimination, that that constitutes protected activity. But that is certainly not the case under um, the current state of the law. And so, for example, let's say an, um, an employee complains about unfair wages or a failure to promote, um, but doesn't claim that, that, that those alleged bad acts occurred because of the individual's membership in a protected activity. Under the proposed new guidelines, something as vague as that could uh, arguably co cover or fall under the implicit communication, and therefore, this is just another example of how the Commission is trying to broaden the definition of protected activity. And then the other primary area where the Commission is trying to expand uh, the rights of uh, employees and and provide more protection than the federal law and the plain uh, reading of the laws provide for is as it relates to causation. Um, if you go through the proposed guidelines, there's a number of references to what the EEOC calls a convincing mosaic of circumstantial evidence, which is what the EEOC contends that its investigators can use to demonstrate that a, uh, a claimant uh, has a viable cause of action of retaliation and to undercut or disprove or discredit the employer's explanation for an adverse action. Um, so those are the key things that I think employers should be uh, concerned about and why this is a pretty significant development uh, because, as I said at the outset, about 43% of the claims uh, filed with the EEOC last fiscal year involved a claim of retaliation. One last point is that the proposed guidelines do have some positive aspects to them in that there are suggestions on how employers could and should address retaliation in the workplace and the EEOC has put out what it contends are a list of best practices. So, and they're generally, by and large, uh, good uh, best practices, training, uh, having good policies, training more, and um, following up with employees so that they're aware of what can and cannot occur in the workplace. But one thing that's missing from the best practices is for a provision for a safe harbor for employers who do the right thing by taking affirmative acts to prevent and rectify retaliation. And this type of safe harbor is already recognized 
in workplace harassment. And of course, the same rationale applies to retaliation. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for, for letting us know why, um, indeed, um, this enforcement guidance proposal is a big deal for employers. Um, Alan, David, and Kevin, thank you all so much for joining us for our insider briefing call today and lending your expertise. Um, if you have any questions about what we've discussed today, please feel free to contact me or Mike Asplund, the manager of the Workplace Policy Institute here at Littler, and, and we'll respond to you or get you in touch with, uh, get you in touch with the experts. Um, as a reminder, Littler is going to be hosting a more in-depth webinar on these topics on February 17th, and if you've not received an invitation and would like to attend, um, please let um, Mike Asplund know. Um, and as a final point, um, it's critical that the employer community weigh in with the EEOC on these important developments. Comments on the proposed changes to the EEO1 report are due April 1st, and comments on the proposed enforcement guidance are due February 24th. Um, please contact me or Mike Asplin um, for more information on that. And thank you again for joining us for our Insider Briefing Call today, and I hope you have a good rest of the week. Thank you all.